Hi everyone, this is Andrew Levy and I'm happy to bring you another podcast and hopefully you'll be just as happy to hear it as I am to present it. And uh, today I'm going to be dealing with a topic which uh, I know will be uh, of great relevance to all of you and uh, it's called Dismissing the Undismissible Employee, maybe as a subtitle, Desperately Difficult Dismissals. And, uh, you know, why? What's the rationale? Every employer has one. Or if you're particularly unlucky, you have um, a number of them. This is the employee who always quotes their rights, the employee who won't accept management authority, the uh, son of Professor Google, the self-styled expert in labor law, the office smartass, uh, the shop steward who says, you can't get me, I'm part of the union, and so on and so forth. And uh, these are employees with, without whom most employers feel they'd get on very well. Uh, but nevertheless, they're still there, and the difficulty is how to exit them. Now, unfortunately, fortunately as the case may be, the LRA forces a choice. As you know, it says you can only dismiss for one of three categories of reasons. That's misconduct, capacity, or operational requirement, thereby forcing you to make a choice. But, of course, the employment contract doesn't only end in that manner. There are circumstances when the contract ends because the employee ends it. I'll give you a few examples. We've talked about the employee who says, I resign with immediate effect, an absolute nonsense if ever there was one. And um, I believe we have a podcast on that. So if you've uh, got that one, please have a look at it. But uh, equally, I suppose one could say rather irreverently, but forgive me, I'm irreverent. This is my sense of humor. And what about the employee who dies? Well, you may turn around and say, well, that's an act of misconduct. If you die on company time without getting written permission beforehand, I'm not going to go there. But um, obviously, the legal effect of death is to cancel all contracts. All contracts come to an end. They terminate. Now, you know, uh, in terms of the LRA, uh, is that uh, poor performance? Well, I don't know. It might be. Operational requirement? Who can tell? Uh, misconduct? No. So there are circumstances where you are compelled to make a decision to terminate, but it's not you that's actually breaking the contract. And the other very good example of that, of course, is the deserter, the person who leaves you without the intention of returning. Now, they actually breach the contract irreparably, and as a result, you are entitled to cancel the contract. But we now have this whole fiction that you uh, need to have some kind of hearing for someone who's not there. Well, no, of course, that's an absolute nonsense, but um, there it is. The point is that even though it's the employee who terminates the contract and you are entitled to respond to that termination by saying, well, I therefore cancel the contract because you've breached it irreparably, you've still got to say, well, I'm firing you for one of the three reasons. There are many other reasons too, just to mention one. Um, what about the employee who is uh, in prison? Well, you know, obviously, if he's been arrested pending a bail hearing, you're not going to do anything because the chances are that he will be bailed out and he'll be back on the street within three days or five days or something like that. But what about the employee who is sentenced and is now serving a prison sentence? Well, that, in fact, is what we call intervening or supervening impossibility of performance. Something happens in terms of the contract which makes its performance impossible. Now, when that happens, the other party to the contract 
in point of fact, has the opportunity of saying, well, I'll, I'll take that breach as a reason to terminate. But, you know, that, that's really by way of discussion. What I want to talk about now is the, uh, uh, the difficult employee, the one who is hard to get. And I may even turn this into two podcasts because there's a lot to be said. But to deal with this, I coined the term a soft dismissal. And this needs some explanation. What is a soft dismissal? Well, simply put, a soft dismissal is a dismissal where you and everybody else knows, possibly even the employee, knows that this relationship is not going anywhere. It has no future. And that, in fact, both of you would be better off if you were to part company. But now, how are you going to affect this when you're dealing with an employee and you can't quite put your finger on it, but you know that this is not working out. i give you an example. Um, most employers don't like the employee who refuses to go the extra mile. In reality, of course, unless your contract or your job de- description says goes the extra mile as required, um, the employee is not required to go the extra mile. The employee is quite entitled to say, look, I, I come to work and earn my living to enable me to do the things I want to do, not because I'm wedded to the job or I love it. So I'll do what I need to do. I'll do it as, as badly as I can to avoid being dismissed, but I will do no more. Now, is that a suitable employee? Well, most employers would say absolutely not. But how are you going to terminate someone who actually does their job and no more? The other Example which crops up frequently is the person who doesn't fit the culture of the organization. Now, you can be the best in the world at whatever you do, but if you don't fit the culture of the organization, there's going to be difficulty. So what I'd like you to think of as an example is the culture of someone who's an absolute or or the attitude or the case of someone who's an absolute star in their organization, their current organization, which is uh, the Disney Corporation. And now they get a job uh, at the Bank of England. Well, you know, frankly, uh, wandering around the office in a clown outfit is not quite the same as turning up to work every day uh, in a pinstripe pair of trousers, a uh, black uh, jacket and a bowler hat, and, and of course the brolly. So it's not always about how you do what you do. It's your fit in the organization. And it's very difficult to terminate someone for fit. What do you call it? Misconduct? Well, you know, the minute you tell someone that they don't fit, they get to turn around and say, well, I'm not the problem. You are. Alternatively, is it misconduct? No. Is it poor performance? Well, maybe they're doing what they need to do, but they're just not a team player. I think you get my point. These are dismissals which are right on the edge. And if you ever find yourself in the CCMA or being tackled by the employer, uh, you're going to be judged by a very, very narrow standard and you're going to have to find a way to deal with this particular employee. Let me talk about one or two of the cases and um, then I'm going to do a follow-up podcast which I'm going to do on uh, uh, mutually agreed separations or mutual separation agreements. Okay, um, the the first thing I want to say is that the employee who you might call the C lawyer or the barrack room lawyer, both ter- terms mean the same, 
It's the person who uh, uh, knows the rules, reads the rules, and then uh, keeps trying to apply them in their minutest detail or, frankly, with the wrong interpretation, that they are convinced that what they say is correct. And sadly, the world of work is full of these do-it-yourself labor experts who uh, find their material uh, or their information on the web. Uh, And as I frequently say, the material that you get on the web is worth exactly what you paid for it, which is usually nothing. This is not to say there's not good information out there. There is, but you need to be uh, very choosy in looking at your sources. And um, it seems to me that many, many of the sites out there are designed simply to bring uh, revenue into the hands of the consultant who says this is so difficult, it's so complex, you can't possibly do it without me, as opposed to trying to make um, his or her client's life a little bit easier. But they read this and they then, of course, apply it and bend it to meet their particular case as they see their particular case and then just form this absolute, you know, immovable and unshakable view that they are right and the employer is wrong. So, for example, how does it manifest itself? You'll find the employee who is summoned to a hearing and then starts communicating and corresponding with the employer and saying, well, this is how you must do the hearing and this is what must happen and I demand this information and I want this and I want that and send me the details of who you propose to use as a chairman and so on and so forth. What they don't understand is that the employee has no right and no responsibility to tell the employer how to manage its business, let alone how to dismiss them. The remedy for the employee who feels they've been unfairly treated lies after the fact. In other words, get yourself dismissed and then refer it to the CCMA. That's the way it's supposed to work. You don't have the right to tell your employer how to do it. And in fact, even the LRA doesn't tell the employer how to do it. The LRA simply says you must do it fairly. You read the Code of Good Practice to see what fairness means, and uh, I'm not going to delve into that right now. But again, I think I would say that there's a great deal of um, misapplication of the code there. So, you know, you carry on. And then the employee, of course, who refuses to come to the hearing or infinitely postpones the hearing on supposed medical grounds, keeps bringing medical certificates, which say, for example, depression, And the more you press him to attend a hearing, the more depressed she becomes. Well, what do you do in those circumstances? Well, it's quite simple. Uh, Depression is a question of illness. No question about that. And you then proceed with your termination on and around the basis of incapacity. And if you read the Code of Good Practice, you'll find plenty of assistance there. Um, in how you uh, you do that one. One of the difficulties that also arises is the uh, the shop steward, who by definition is going to be someone who uh, is a little more vocal than his mates, is prepared to stand up to the employer. That's why he's a shop steward. And, you know, the, these these people, and I don't mean to say these people in any derogatory sense, I say it with respect, um, are natural leaders. That's why they are where they are. But frequently, they do have a distorted view of what labor law says, and they cleave to that view. And that very often gets their uh, 
um, their members into trouble because they give them bad advice. Now, just in passing, the same happens with um, employees as well. They go to um, one of these supposed consultants who gives them advice, which is not good advice, but they hang on to it, um, and they then worsen their situation and put themselves in a position where it becomes that much easier to dismiss them because they start becoming offensive. And, of course, the LRA does not provide anywhere that the employer must be subject to abuse. Yes, they need to respect their employees. They need to respect their employees' rights, but they don't have to put up with abuse. And believe it or not, although it's a difficult thing to talk about in this day and age, the employee still owes the employer a duty of respect. Now, you may turn around and say, well, respect must be earned. Well, that's not quite the case here because the employee, in terms of the contract, is in a subordinate position. They must listen to the employer. They must take instruction. They must take direction. They must carry out their or the, their instructions to the best of their ability, and they must respect the legitimate authority of the employer. And, you know, if you're looking for a killer charge for the difficult employee, then I find a charge which reads um, a total denial or total failure to recognize the legitimate rights of the employer is a good one. And then you go on and say, in that you did the following things and you describe the action that they took. That's the formula for charging. Because someone who denies the legitimate authority of the employer, in fact, goes to the heart of the employment contract and and destroys it, thereby making it very, very difficult to maintain that. So those are some introductions to the topic of uh, dismissing the undismissible employee and dealing with the soft dismissal, the circumstance where everybody knows that the relationship is going nowhere, but you find it difficult to shoehorn it into one of the three categories, misconduct capacity or operational requirement, and I must caution you about using operational requirement. But that really, I think, is as far as I want to go in uh, this discussion. I'm going to continue in a another discussion, another podcast, um, which will deal with the mutually agreed separation. And then perhaps just to remind you or to notify you, because I haven't told the world yet, that I am going to be uh, uh, running another one of my webinars on this topic, uh, and it will be entitled Dismissing the Undismissible Employee. Uh, with an additional section, Andrew's Secrets of Success at the CCMA, and I will teach you uh, two or three techniques which I have developed and which I use and rely on, and you can use and rely on them in domestic hearings as well, which will certainly help to uh, tip the odds in your favor. So until then, let me say thank you very much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please let me know. Andrew, at andrewlevy.co.za. You can find us on the web, www.andrewlevy.co.za. And, of course, if needs be, you can always call me. My cell is uh, 083-650-5001. I look forward to your feedback and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much and goodbye.
You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.